As some of you may know, I'm currently teaching a summer school class. And as some of you may also know, I'm doing this a bit kicking and screaming. But the Lord is really gracious, and I have a great group of students. And I'm not just saying that because one of them is sitting in our midst. <laughs> now, it's kind of ironic, the class that I'm teaching. It's actually preaching from the New Testament. And I team teach it with someone from the pastoral theology department. What's ironic is that this past Thursday evening, we talked about the importance of a good introduction or the importance of compelling questions that would draw your audience in. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that is not going to happen. <laughs> so I hope I don't get a lower grade. Instead, I want to let you into the process that led me to focus on what we're going to focus on this morning. And one of the great things about preaching in a liturgical context, like we have here in Redeemer, is that we have four passages read each week. So when I find out the date that I'm preaching, I start reading through these passages and pray that the Spirit will prompt me as to which one I should preach from. And this time around, it wasn't any different. <laughs> After I was reading the passages today, and you might see this kind of thread coming out pretty easily, the word that kept coming to mind over and over was contentment. Now, I kind of received this with a little bit of kicking and screaming. <laughs> and there was a part of me that said, you're kidding. In this extended season of our discontent, you want me to preach on contentment? That's the pandemic <laughs> and everything related to it. But then there was this little whisper that said, yeah, maybe it's time for a refresher course on this one. So I had this sense that the Lord wanted me to focus on contentment. And this is what suggested the, the way that I want to focus on uh, Colossians 3. Now, I'm not suggesting that Paul had contentment first and foremost in his mind when he was writing Colossians 3. But I think there are some really good insights into contentment that come from this passage. And I know I've really needed to be reminded of this this morning. But before we look at Colossians 3, I think we need to acknowledge that discontentment is just so much easier than contentment. We are surrounded with so many things that invite us to not be content. You don't have to raise your hands, but some of you may have awoken yesterday a little bit discontent that you were not $1.2 billion richer. <laughs> The mega millions just taps into this sense of what we could do if we won the lottery. Things that we can't do because we haven't won the lottery. But you don't have to buy a lottery ticket to fuel our discontent. You just need to read your email and have all the pop-up ads come. I did not know that I needed a brand new pair of sneakers that were environmentally friendly until I saw the ad and suddenly realized just how old my current sneakers were. <laughs> and more significantly, we are bombarded with images all around us, advertising of all kind, that makes us feel very discontent about everything, from our appearance to our cars, speaking as one who has a 17-year-old car. So what I want to suggest is it is so much easier to be discontent and then to be content. And so contentment is something that really has to be intentionally focused on. I think contentment is something like joy. It comes when other things are put in place. 
It's not something we can go after directly. So with this in mind, I'd like to look at Colossians 3, and you are welcome to follow along in the bulletin. Um, I want to look at three movements in Colossians 3. And just to give you kind of a milestone, a head, heads up, this is going to go high, low, and high. And we are literally going to start on a high note. And then we're going to go through some very difficult terrain. But we are going to end with a glorious vision. So I want to start by looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And here's the first observation I want to make about contentment. Contentment comes from an eternal perspective. The beginning of verse 1 says, Since you have been raised with Christ. It's a statement that's true about us because we are indeed raised with Christ, that then we are to seek the things that are above, because that's where we truly are. Now, one of the most amazing things about the Christian life is that corporately, together in this community and around the world, as well as individually, we get to parallel events in the life of Christ. If you were to go back in Colossians to chapter 2, verse 20, there Paul is going to talk about are dying with Christ. And in dying with Christ, we die to the wisdom and logic of the world. I mean, that's what Ecclesiastes tells us, right? It's meaningless. There's something better. So in baptism, we have the real experience, symbolically portrayed in baptism, of dying with Christ to those things. We are actually dead to the things of the world. And here in this passage, we get the counterpart of that. We are raised with Christ. We join in his resurrection and ascension. Now, I know this is really hard to grasp because all of us right now are sitting or standing here in Highwood, Illinois. We're not in the heavenlies. And I want to just point out, this is something that uh, theologians, you can correct me, um, call the already not yet. So there are some things that we already have seated in the heavenlies, but not yet. We're not totally there. So last time I talked about this kind of thing, we went through the entire book of Revelation. Don't worry, not going to happen again. But what I tried to stress in the Fasten Your Seatbelts tour through Revelation is that the transcendent realm is actually the ultimate reality. And what we're living through and in and around us is not the ultimate reality. In other words, this is not all there is. Praise God. Hallelujah. That to me is a huge source of contentment because we need to realize that actually there is something much greater. And as I said when I was talking about Revelation, it's not really up there or out there. It's the spiritual realm around us. And if you remember, I talked about those thin places, those places where we really have an experience of the spiritual realm. So I want us to start out by just having that focus of where we truly are in the heavenlies, seated with Christ. And then there's that wonderful description about when he appears, we will appear as we truly are in glory. Um, I think I'm going to misquote C.S. Lewis, when he said that if we were to truly see another believer as they will appear in their resurrected glory, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship them. But that's the spiritual truth of where we truly are. 
Now, it used to be said, I don't think you hear it that often now, but that sometimes Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I actually want to say that the problem a lot of times is that we are just not heavenly minded at all. We don't have our focus there, and we are so much aware of the things around us. That doesn't mean we stop living our lives. That doesn't mean we somehow go into a monastery, although sometimes that's kind of tempting. Um, but what it means is that we can cease striving after the things that are all around us. We can rest. We can be content. We can be content with the things that God gives us, and we can be content in the things that he doesn't give us the things that are not right, knowing that they will be right at some point. I loved what uh, Mother Amanda preached on last week with the Lord's Prayer, and just that idea of really longing after your kingdom come, your will be done. And I think that ties into this. So true contentment, I think, comes when we realize that we're headed for something more, that there is just something further out there that that, uh, is compelling. Now, I mentioned that there are three movements that we're going to look at, and the next movement is going to feel very abrupt, and that begins with verse 5, where it says, put to death. (laughs) We're now talking about something different, right? Um, These verses don't apparently seem to have a lot to do with contentment, but I would like to suggest that they really do, because true contentment is not possible when certain actions or certain attitudes are taking place. In the logic of this passage, Paul is saying that since we are raised with Christ, that's the truth, there are some things that just simply don't coexist with that reality. So I want to look at a few things in verses 5 through 9. Now, sometimes verse 5 is called a vice list. And I think this kind of taps into a a common misperception about Christianity, that it's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Okay, And what I'd like to say is there are some important don'ts in this list, so I'm not denying the don'ts. But what I think is that there's something much deeper going on. The first couple of items clearly have to do with some kind of sexual sin. But the next next to last item, greediness, is somewhat surprising. In our context, a lot of times, I think we think of greediness in association with money or maybe food. But we don't often think about it in this context of these sexual sins. But what draws them all together is a motivation of grasping after more. And another way of saying that is a failure to be content with what one already has. Each one of these items is going after something more that is not presently there. And I think this is why Paul then links this to idolatry, because the core of idolatry is the failure or even the refusal to believe that what God has provided is enough. So we must go outside to get something because God can't do it. Now, I think to fully understand this, we have to go back to the garden. And I like to joke that it always goes back to the garden. The interaction between Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3 is really instructive in this regard. Now, Genesis 1 outlines how God creates all of the universe. And what is so interesting is that each one of those days is assessed as good. Everything that God does is good. And in fact, humans are, the creation of humans is very good. Over and over, this repeats. Then we get in Genesis 2, 
a picture of God purposefully placing his created ones, those who bear his image, in the center of his creation to shepherd and steward it. And again, the overwhelming sense of these two um, chapters is the goodness of God. So this brings us to chapter 3. And here we find Eve and Adam, because I think he was standing right there, in the midst of more abundance than any human beings have ever seen. Everything around them is shouting out, God is good, God is good. But the way that the serpent tempts Eve, and by extension all of us, is so instructive. He gets her to focus on the one thing that is off-limits. Out of all of this abundance, he redirects her focus to just one thing. And most importantly, he presents this limitation as a deprivation and proof that God is not really good because he's withholding something good, something even essential for her happiness. Now, Eve had some options. She could have asked Adam, is this really what God said? Or she could have just looked around at the abundance and reminded herself of God's goodness. But instead, she allowed the focus on the one thing that was off limits to bring about discontent. That was now something she had to have. And I think this is, again, the key. That one of the major ways that we are tempted is that we allow our focus to be put on what we don't have and we associate what we don't have with a deprivation and an indication that God is not really about our goodness. He's not really about our happiness. He can't really be trusted. Now, I know this is hard, but I think this is really the core of idolatry, the, the, the core idea that somehow what God, what is essential for my happiness is somehow just beyond my grasp, and I need to go after it. Um, and again, I would just say this is that an idol only has the power that it has when we doubt God's goodness, when we doubt that what God has given us is enough. So I like to call idols or this list, they're contentment killers. It's just not possible to be content when we're grasping after other things or more. Now, as I said, the movement in, this movement, this low movement in Colossians 3 covers some difficult territory. And we don't just get one vice list, we get two. So if, chap if verse 5 is talking about contentment killers, then I'm going to say that the vice list that we get in verse 8 is talking about community destroyers. Every single, list in the, every single item in this list is somehow uh, descriptive of things that destroy community. These are things that happen interpersonally. Now, I think it's also interesting that five vices, five sins, get one verse, verse 8, and one vice gets an entire verse to itself, and that's verse 9. That's another way of saying how destructive lying actually is. Nothing destroys a community more than lying. And I think one of the reasons why lying is so fundamentally destructive is that it negates who we are as image bearers of God. I think that language is one of the key ways that we bear God's image. Now, God can do things with words, right? He can speak the world into existence. And we can do things with words. We can build up or we can destroy. When God speaks, it is always in accordance with truth. 
So when we lie, we are at the very core not aligned with who we truly are as image bearers. And I think this is why lying is so destructive. Now I'm trying to step very lightly here. We as a community at Redeemer are going through a very difficult time because of some of these issues. I know that the list of sexual sins and the examples of the misuse of speech are very painful to hear in our present circumstance. And I want to be really clear, I have prayed so much over this sermon. I don't have a hidden agenda. We as a community have begun the process, how to process these things, and we're going to continue to do so. I'm praying that this passage will give us some clarity and help us to process. I'm also praying that we can see more clearly the things that we might grasp after, that we, how we might misuse speech so that we can be set free then we can recognize the contentment killers and the community destroyers and long for and experience truly something different. So this brings us to our last movement in this passage, and it's an up one, okay? Um, this, this last part, verses 9 through 11, presents a better way. And it's a picture of what we already have, the already and the not yet, where we're headed. As I said, lying is a repudiation of who we truly are in Christ. So this is why Paul says that we're to put off the old self and put on the new. Um, This is an image of clothing. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if you've ever been out working in the yard with an old t-shirt on and it gets smelly and dirty and you come in and you take a shower, you do not want to put that smelly, dirty t-shirt back on, right? You want something that's fresh and clean. And that's the image here. The word self makes us think individually, but there's another way, slipping in a little Greek here, there's another way that we could translate this word and we could talk about humanity. So what Paul is actually saying is that we are to put off things that are associated with the old humanity and put on things that are associated with the new humanity. God is now currently recreating humanity in the image of Christ. So we're to put off like dirty clothing, the practices, the motivations, and the attitudes that are associated with the old order of things. Instead, we're being shaped into something new, fresh, life-giving. We are being renewed so that we can experience a new way of relating. In Christ, the old way of determining worth and value no longer obtains. And that brings us to verse 11. The distinctions between Greeks and Jews, between those who were outside and those who were inside, between those who perceived themselves to be better because they were circumcised, whether others were not, that no longer matters. The Greeks thought that anyone who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian. Maybe that one can remain. (laughs) But it was... Uh, the way to understand this is the, the first century was very hierarchical, very much determined by one's status. And we're no different. We live constantly with external things that are trying to determine our worth. We're not determined by our education. We're not determined by our appearance. We're not de- uh, determined by what we do. That's not our worth. That's not our intrinsic worth. Our value and worth is in Christ. And the way that I want to phrase this, we are enough. We don't need to be striving after something else. We are enough. 
We don't have to be smarter. We don't have to be thinner. We don't have to be more clever or anything. We are enough in Christ. And that is a huge source of contentment. So as I said, this was a hard sermon to work on. It's obviously encouraging to think about the things above, things that are noble and pure and true and honorable. And it's very hard to work through the lists of sinful behaviors and deceptive ways that speech can be used. Yet I pray earnestly that we will end up encouraged, deeply encouraged, about the new work that God is doing through Christ in our midst. God is creating a new humanity throughout the world, but he's doing that very work right here at Redeemer, right now. He is transforming us into his image, and he is leading us to be the people who truly reflect his image. It's hard work, but we can rest. We can be content. God is enough, and in Christ we are enough. Amen. Amen.